You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey, and with me today is Dr. Louis Casalino. Dr. Casalino is professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, also holding advanced degrees in both philosophy and theology. Dr. Casalino is a national expert in the field of neurobiology and has published numerous books and articles on this subject. Welcome, Dr. Casalino. Thank you, Laura. Good to be here. Great. Today we're discussing the social brain. Now, what does it mean to say that the brain is social? I guess the key element of that is shifting from the usual paradigm, which is thinking of the brain as an individual organ like the heart or the lungs, thinking of the brain as an organ that is shaped by experience, especially social experience, and can't live without being connected to other brains. So how is the brain shaped by experience? Another way in which the brain differs from other organs is that the heart and lungs, for example, do pretty much the same thing throughout life. They do it better or worse depending on health and uh, time of life. But the brain's job is kind of interesting. It's like here are all of these neurons, and they're overproduced, they're millions of them, God knows how many there are, and then the mandate is to cope. Take these neurons and use them to survive in a particular environment and adapt to that environment. So the brain is shaped initially by template genetics from uh, what we receive from our parents, but then secondarily triggered by experience, transcription genetics shapes the brain, and the majority of our brain structure is built based on particular experience after birth. So you're saying that experience, social experience, affects gene transcription? Uh, Yeah, the types of interactions that uh, people have with one another stimulate the biochemistry of the brain to learn. And because we're social creatures, our primary learning environment is a context of relationships. So we learn in those relationships, triggers the brain to learn, and we develop attachment behaviors. We learn how to speak and interact and We learn survival skills for the environment in the context of the family, the tribe, the community. So the brain is a social organ and reflects the architecture of the brain comes to reflect our learning histories. So it affects the architecture of the brain? How does that happen? Well, um, there's a a bunch of sort of uh, cliches about that. In other words, neurons that wire together fire together, and those that don't make good connections with one another are, you know, cleaned away through a process called apoptosis. They die off. So what happens from this original overabundance of neurons at the beginning of life is that the ones that connect into functional networks, in other words, those things that allow us to connect with others and perform valuable behaviors, survive and thrive, and they connect with one another. And so that shapes the architecture of the brain, and those neurons that uh, you know, are less efficient or not connected are cleaned away. So let's get concrete here. Um, let's consider a mother with an infant. How is it that the mother's experience with the infant is affecting that infant's brain? Well, so many ways. For example, um, and this, a lot of this research comes from uh, lower mammals because we can't do the type of invasive research that we can do with them. But evolution conserves many of these processes. And the more we look at this, the more we discover how much, in fact, we have in common with rats, for example, who are, just lower, who are lower mammals. But a specific example of that is if you look at the amount of maternal behavior that a pup receives, that a child receives, what you'll see is that there's a correlation between the number of, in rats, the number of licks, the number of uh, feedings, the, number of, the amount of attention that a mother shows the child. 
correlates when their you know when their brain are when their brains are autopsied later the number of endorphin receptors benzodiazepine receptors and other structural aspects of their brains that correlate then with a sense of well-being safety the ability to explore in human beings this will take the you know the manifestation of affect regulation being able to do well in school and relationships those types of things so the mother's interactions with the child is actually building these structures stimulating the growth of receptors shaping the neural architecture that allows what we see that you know we see this correlation between positive childhood experiences and adult psychological health and these are some of the underlying biological mechanisms that contribute to that process so experience with the mother actually affects the number of receptors mm-hmm. in a certain neural system right and does it affect dendrite formation and number and so forth right for example the more maternal or paternal attention that a child receives, we know from uh, psychological developmental sciences that those children tend to have more affect regulation. They tend to be able to cope better with stress and those sorts of things. And so hypothetically, what we're dealing with then is the interactions, the parent-child interactions, building structures between the medial portions of the frontal lobe and the amygdala, for example, which allow a child's experiences and sense of connection to the world and well-being to regulate their emotional life so that they're less impulsive, so that they're able to sit still and to play as opposed to being hyperactive, these types of things. So could you explain more about how the child's emotional experience is affected by the mother, the interaction with the parents, and how that then leads to their own ability to regulate their emotions? It's a very broad question that you're asking. There's so many aspects here. When you think in terms of, of emotional or emotional reactivation to certain situations, you might think in terms of the fight-flight response, which we share with very primitive animals. So the autonomic nervous system gets activated in threat situations, and we either fight the enemy or we run away or we do something, and the threat is resolved, and then we come back. So this is kind of an on-off switch, right? And, but to be in relationships, in order to be a social animal, fight-flight isn't enough. Right? I mean, we can't run away from other people if we're upset with them, or, and we can't fight them. To be in a relationship, especially to be a parent, you're interacting with a child who might upset you. But then you have to regulate that. You have to keep in mind. Um, you have to have perspective, be mindful of the child's developmental stage, and modify or, or moderate your emotion and modify your behavior. So it's less like an on-off switch like more primitive animals have to more of a volume control, in a sense. And so one of the aspects of that for example, is vagal regulation. So there's a fellow, Steve Porges, who came up with this theory of the social engagement system. And he talks about the development of this vagal break or this vagal system that kind of is parallel to the uh, parasympathetic nervous system but contributes to affective regulation. So when you have good parent-child relationships, and not just parent-child, but anyone who's interacting with the child in a reasonable way, in in a loving, caring way, what the child is learning slowly is are the different levels of emotional arousal and uh, building brain structure that allows them to develop that volume control as opposed to the on-off switch. So there's really a one-to-one correspondence between that child's social or interpersonal experience and what happens in their brain. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. 
If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. And I'm your host, Dr. Laura Humphrey. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Louis Casalino. Dr. Casalino is professor of psychology at Pepperdine University and holds advanced degrees also in philosophy and theology. Dr. Casalino is a national expert in the field of neurobiology and has published numerous books and articles on this field. We're talking now about the social brain. A lot of what you're saying sounds very evidence-based. Is that true? Well, it's true and not true. This is one of the one of the difficulties in pulling together an interdisciplinary science where we're applying a lot of the research we're, we're using is, is applying animal studies to human beings. And we have, I mean, personally, I have confidence that many, because uh, evolution conserves so many of these processes and structures, that as, we, as our techniques get more sophisticated, we'll be finding that more and more of what we know from animals will apply to human beings. Right now what we're doing is primarily depending on the physiological research from animals, tying it together with the social science research with humans, and also the scan data. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the actual histological research is so invasive, I mean, we, you know, we certainly would never get human subjects' approval. For doing, uh, for doing any of the research or most of the research that's done with animals. Yes, nor should we. <laughs> right, right. Tell us how a scan study is done. What you're measuring in the brain is essentially neural activity, and you can measure glucose utilization, oxygen uptake, those sorts of things. And what it, it's been found that those sorts of measures correspond you know, pretty closely with activity in those brain regions. So we have a lot of confidence now that this just isn't a correlation. We're actually witnessing the brain areas that are active. And so in social, especially in social cognition and social neuroscience, we're most interested in coming up with some theories about how the brain organizes to have the experience of empathy, for example, or self-awareness, or how it solves problems. And what happens is, is people are put in scanners and they're given certain tasks and they're asked to do these tasks, and as they're doing them, researchers are you know, monitoring what's happening in the brain, what regions are lighting up, what, what regions appear to be working together, um, and we're constructing hypotheses based on these patterns of activation. Fascinating. And how does the brain interact with another brain? Going back to this notion of conservation, and I think about the three messenger systems uh, be, that, of communication between neurons. So the first messenger system is this intersynaptic transmission, which we all see on the antidepressant commercials. You know, the uh, neurotransmitters are released from one neuron and stimulate the other until it fires. So that's the first level of synaptic transmission. The second level of transmission is the change within the biochemical environment within the cell, right, because the stimulation of the external part of the cell and its firing changes the internal biological environment. And then the third level of transmission is the impact on the mRNA, the genetic material in the neuron, that results in protein synthesis and builds the dendrites of that neuron to make it grow and connect with other neurons. So through these three messenger systems, interactions and communication are translated into flesh. So love becomes flesh or interaction becomes flesh in the process of, uh, of those three messenger systems. So I think that process has been conserved in human beings in the sense that we can conceive of the space between us as a social synapse. And there are all sorts of ways in which we communicate across the social synapse using our, our, the various senses, our you know, speech, eye contact, gestures, body postures, all of those types of things, pheromones, you name it. I mean, there are many, many, just like there are many neurotransmitters, 
there are many uh, forms of transmission across the social synapse, and those communications stimulate our brains and result in our brains growing. So can we re-network or reprogram this social brain? It certainly makes sense that the social brain systems would be very plastic given that, and what I mean by plastic is just that they would be able to change over life, over our lifespan, given the fact that uh, historically we've had to go through a number of transitions in life and attach and bond with different people. So, you know, in childhood we, we attach primarily to our fam, immediate families, and then we grow up and we attach to a peer group, and then we grow up after that and we have to create a new family and attach to our own children, and then we grow older and we attach to our grandchildren and other people, you know, other peers. So the social brain system there's all evidence that it's a plastic system in humans and that this plasticity continues throughout life. And the fact that psychotherapy was born and continues suggests that there's some plasticity that can get activated in the process of a professional relationship, a therapeutic relationship, and that change can occur in that social context. Fascinating. I want to thank Dr. Louis Casalino, who has been our guest today, and we've been discussing the social brain. I'm Dr. Laura Humphrey. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.